So have you ever had your eyes glaze over when someone hands you a history textbook or walks you through a museum full of facts and dates, but then you hate yourself because you are smart and yet you don't feel like you actually know things? I'm starting this because that's me. That's me. I'm hand raising right here. (laughs) I have been that person until I've learned better over the last three and a half years doing this podcast. That is why I'm absolutely thrilled to share this conversation with the authors of a fabulous historical fiction novel that taught me so much about American history and the Civil War in particular. And I'm jumping in here to say, even as the granddaughter of a Civil War historian, I learned so much in reading this book, in particular about experiences that were never taught in school or were largely glossed over in favor of a simpler, read-dominant narrative. The book is called The Thread Collectors. Go get it from our bookshop.org page for Dear White Women podcast. And it was written by two friends, so we love that. One Black woman and one white Jewish woman. Think about how much weight there is in just that partnership alone. Totally. So this conversation takes us deep into belonging, the lessons we learn from history that are so relevant today, and the hope that we still have for where we can go from here. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. We're super excited to be here. Would you two please introduce yourselves for our audience? I'm Allison Richmond. And I'm Shauna J. Edwards. Together, folks, they are the authors of a fantastic book we're going to talk about today. I need to tell you that one of my favorite things to do in the world, which I rarely make time to do, is to read during the day. And so when we got a copy of Thread Collectors, it was such a pleasure to be able to tell myself, well, I have to read this for the podcast. So I like bolted to the sofa mid-afternoon and was like laying down reading and it was fantastic. But I did not expect that I was going to find myself tearing up by the end, crying and moving, like really moved by your storytelling and the characters that that you introduced. Well, Sarah, you're a woman after my own heart. I also love to read during the day. And while I'm certainly not happy that you cried, I am happy that you felt the emotion that Allison and I were intending to bring to the page. I didn't have quite the lovely mid-afternoon, you know, reading story that Sarah did. I read it at like between 3 and 5 a.m. for a whole host of reasons that we won't go into right now, but I loved it, you know, and I want to add that my grandfather, which is going to sound strange, but I'll explain why in a second, would have loved this book as well, because not only was he a Civil War historian, but he also firmly believed in his entire scholarship and the books that he wrote were about, you know, what was the best way to learn history and his firm belief was that the best way to learn about the true history was from first person narratives of people whose voices were largely kept out of the dominant narrative at the time. And, you know, I think that describes so many, like all of the characters in your book, really, that's Jacob, that's William, that's Stella, you know, and so I'd like to kick this off by asking, how did you focus then on whose stories you were going to tell? Well, I think You know, having William and Jacob be musicians was really important to us right from the beginning. I mean, when you read the book, you can see how music is this connective tissue between the two men. It's this other form of language that bonds them and cements their friendship. And that friendship grows from their mutual love of music. But it's the first thing that connects these two people who are, you know, from different backgrounds, different religion, they're, you know, different colored skin and, you know, their lives entwine against the battlefield in Louisiana. So that was something we knew we wanted to do right away, primarily because on my ancestral tree, 
I have a great, great, great uncle who fought in the Union side of, in the army during the Civil War, and he enlisted as a musician. And because we knew that was a fact and that was something that we did want to weave in our family histories into this book, knowing that he was a musician, it was like, okay, well, then I think it would be really interesting if our, you know, Black character, William, is also a musician, so we could explore that. But because we know that women also are lovers of historical fiction, and I had had this idea relatively early on in the brainstorming process, which we can get into, that William would have a backstory and he would take something of value and give it to his beloved to sew into a map that's more permanent, we knew we wanted to focus on women as well. So that's how the character of Stella, who is our enslaved Black woman, she's secretly creating covert maps for enslaved men to run away to the Union Army. And then our fiery Jewish abolitionist woman up in New York, Lily, that is how they enter the scene. It was at some point, Masasha, it's interesting that you noted it, we had to make some decisions about which characters we would push forward and which ones would recede a little bit. And that is why Lily's story um, is told in the beginning a lot through letters where she's sending them down to Jacob, but she gains prominence in probably, you know, the back third, because we know with so many characters and so many interesting characters, we wanted to have a balance for our readers. If not, it would have been like full frontal, probably too much. <laughs> Speaking of one of those characters, there was a section you wrote about Jacob, who was a Jewish man, just for context, folks, but a Jewish man at the time where there was only really a small number of like a very small Jewish population in the United States. And in it, he felt a sense of camaraderie with William. And the other black soldiers who were singing a song that he wrote. And that section hit me because and I want to get this right. But you wrote the men in his infantry had always kept him at an arm's distance. They were mostly polite and cordial, but the feeling of being an outsider was still hard to shake. Many in his company had never met someone Jewish before. He knew he wore his background quietly, never fully revealing himself. But his sense of vulnerability and foreignness was always with him, a trait born into him from his first breath. And as a biracial person, Japanese immigrant mom, white father, especially when I was younger, I always felt a little on the outside. And that feeling for sure has shaped me like into who I am today. And it's that feeling that I wonder, like, and I guess this is sort of directed towards you, Allison, but like, is that a feeling that white people feel? In what circumstance can white people relate to that feeling of hiding one true self? And I ask that just because I think the more we have empathy and understanding for the psychological toll it takes to be anything other than a white person in this country, it can help in these conversations. So I just wanted to say I appreciated that, but also ask that reflective question. Yeah, I mean, some of those words are taken basically from my mother's own mouth of how I was raised. I, you know, I am, you know, 100% Jewish. But I grew up in a place on Long Island, which had a very, very small Jewish population. <laughs> so what you were saying really mirrors my experience, you know, a lot of my experience. I went to, a, you know, for example, I went to a Presbyterian nursery school where when they were, you know, celebrating Christmas, I so vividly remember this, even though I was three years old and being said, well, you're not Christian, you're Jewish. Tell us about what Hanukkah means to you. And just this like hot light of otherness on me and feeling different but also being young and wanting to feel that I was a member of a bigger group, which I wasn't. So um, there was always this sense of being different. And I think out of a way that my mother thought was self-preservation, not to draw attention to yourself. And so 
as I've gotten older, you know, my first three books don't ever have any Jewish book characters in them. And then it was something that I started to wanted to explore about that feeling of outsidership, that feeling of unique experience or a unique lens, looking at history through that lens, which, you know, obviously Sean and I did that through two perspectives, the Black and the Jewish in this book. But those words very much reflect a lot of my childhood. I also growing up biracial, I under felt that section, you know, similar to, to Sarah. And also thinking back to like my own family, there there have been ideological splits in my family, partially around race, because I have white Southern, you know, family members who were very upset that my mother would marry a Japanese immigrant, among other things. So, you know, this storyline that you have as well, that you both have talks about that to a degree, right? Because then I think that mirrors some of your own family history, where you have ancestors who fought on opposite sides in the Civil War. Yes. I didn't mention that when I met, I focused on the Union great, great, great uncle who was a musician, but his older brother, who was already entrenched in business down in Mississippi when the Civil War broke up, enlisted in the Confederacy. And so growing up from my grandmother, I always heard that division that took place between the brothers during the Civil War was never repaired, that we no longer had any contact with the Southern part of the family. And so it was always this mystery in the back of my mind of like, what happens between two brothers who are immigrants to this country? You know, they come from Germany, they're outsiders themselves, and they take two different positions during the Civil War, and how that permanently divides them forever. Yeah, I thought that that you know, and again, being the granddaughter of a historian, right? I always look at history. And and Shauna, I know you have family ties to Louisiana. My husband is also from Louisiana. So we were just in Baton Rouge, like fully sweltering in August. Like no one willingly goes to Baton Rouge to visit in August except us. But you know, and being in Louisiana, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, there's so much history there. Very complicated history on many levels. And, you know, I, I would love to hear some of your thoughts about that, but also what lessons can we learn from looking back on history, right? Because we are talking about a very specific in your book, the historical fiction around the Civil War period, but we see a lot of that, like split ideologies, you know, families separated to this day, you know, around things like conspiracy theories, extreme white right-wing politics, right? Whether we should be renaming Confederacy monuments or not. So I'd love to hear your thoughts around that. Absolutely. So proud Louisianian, acknowledging its complexity. My family, for the generations back that we can trace, have basically been on the border of Louisiana and Texas and moving back and forth. And my family, part of the reason we explore colorism in the book is because my father's family, he's no longer with us, very, very fair-skinned, my mother's family, darker, she is thankfully still alive. But while not as stark as marrying outside of the race, you know, my father's family thought it was insane in the 60s that he would marry a darker skinned woman when he has family that are light enough to pass. For me, the complexity of Louisiana is both the most intriguing part of it, which is that you can't get away from the past, but then in the same way, you can't get away from the past. So it's a constant reckoning, right? Um, Allison and I were just in New Orleans about three weeks ago. We were traveling around and we passed Robert E. Lee's circle. And they've taken down the statue now, but I know it's Robert E. Lee's circle. And having grown up in New Orleans, it's not as if I passed that place and because it's not there, I think, oh, well now we're all good. 
if anything, I'm saying people are walking around, they're going to Bourbon Street and they're not realizing that the shadow of the statue, even though the statue is gone, still permeates this entire city. And I think Louisiana is a case in point of like, in a way, having to confront things and just it, it always being there. And some people think that's a good thing. Some people think that's a bad thing. But I am a firm believer. And one of the reasons why I was so thrilled when Allison asked me to join this project after a decade of friendship is I'm sick of not having conversations, right? And I'm sick of pretending that we just reset history every four years. You know, the Civil War was very present to me as a child, as a Black woman growing up in Louisiana, and it's present in our nation, and it's not distant history to me. And so I'm glad that we got the opportunity to talk about this. Along those lines of what you were saying, these conversations, you know, something that Misash and I talk a lot about is wanting to have an understanding. And I mentioned it before about what life is like for different people, especially different like people who belong to groups that have historically been oppressed and marginalized in the United States. But your description about how the abolitionists in the North during the Civil War, right, Lily, who you mentioned before, who were like stitching together Band-Aids for the soldiers in battle and doing what they thought was critical work was in reality like wildly different from the experiences of the nurses who were hands-on tending to the injured soldiers in the tents. And so I feel like that really spoke to this idea of we think we can understand how bad things are for other people, but we don't really get it, especially if we remained distanced from it, if we aren't like right there having these conversations, Shauna, that you were talking about. But on top of that, I feel like you really emphasize or leave it with a sense of creativity and like ingenuity. People can do things like when things are hard, things come to the forefront. When people along those lines are like being directly impacted by systems meant to keep them down, like survival instinct and drive is a really beautiful thing, as is hope. And so where do you think we have in our society today, like things that inspire you with hope? What are people not seeing about where we are today? And how do we learn to lead in that sense, like right there on the front lines? Well, you know, I feel that even the coming together of Sean, not to be self-serving, but, you know, this book came to be because, Sean, you know, during the spring of 2020, when we were in the throes of the pandemic, and all of a sudden, you know, you're seeing the brutal murder of George Floyd on television, and all of this racial injustice is coming into the forefront of, you know, that you can no longer, even if you're, you know, not of that particular group, you're seeing the great injustice. We saw this as a legacy project to, to come together to create a book that wasn't just about focusing on the darkness of the Civil War, but also the hope that emerges out from it, the friendship that emerges between two or four unexpected characters. And it's that building of empathy and that sense of intention and purpose that I know for me helped heal during a very broken time and a very scary time. So although I'm not going to say neither Sean and I were, you know, as ingenious as Stella, our character who is, you know, repurposing every bit of thread and cloth to, to create maps to help enslave men enlist and fight for freedom. There was a sense of trying to, in Hebrew, there is an expression to kunalam, to repair a broken world, you know, one stitch at a time that every person has, if they do that, the world will become a better place. I know that Sean and I were trying to do that by creating this book. Well, as usual, I agree with everything that Allison just said. I will also note that 
I have had to learn how to become a better listener. When we first started writing this novel, my day job was in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And like I knew all of the theories, but I was too theoretical in a way. I was too removed. And I do think as scary as technology is for me, you know, fumbling when I get on the Zooms, the advent of technology and more people who have been ignored and their stories being able to come to the forefront and us choosing to listen to them and choosing to listen to this podcast and choosing to spend our money on stories that would not have gotten through the machines before is critical. And I think that I have learned over the past two and a half years or so, something that an old mentor of mine had told me, but I hadn't yet internalized it. And he's in the philanthropy world. And he said, there is an axiom of social work and it is don't do anything for me without me. And that requires listening to people. And you talk about Lily and rolling the bandages and she's heard that's great. And, you know, I know it would have been impractical, but the nurses on the field might have said, maybe you could raise some money for morphine, right? Like we, we got cloth. And so I do think that what is inspirational to me now is that we are starting to listen to the people who are in need of the support and we're tailoring our responses to that need. I think that's such an important point, right? Because I think that there has been at times, right? And I live in the Bay Area, which has a lot of that at times, right? You know, oh, I, I know what you need when you're not doing that first ask of like, well, what is it that you actually need, right? And and I also, in talking about stories that were not told or stories that are not sort of the focus of the stories that we hear, I really liked, loved that you made sure to include the stories of Black soldiers needing to dig graves for white soldiers, right? Or the burning of the colored orphans home in New York City, right? Because those facts undermine some of the arguments that I think are so easy to make. And again, living in the Bay Area, I hear a lot of it, right? You know, because you fought on the slide against slavery, you were somehow immediately anti-racist. And I think that's, you know, the whole thing that like, well, I'm not racist. I've believed that all people are equal and full stop. That's it, you know, or, you know, even worse, I'm colorblind. I don't see color, which having black Japanese and white kids, that's very, very well. Anyway, we won't get into that now because that could take us in a whole separate direction. But, you know, I want to talk about that, why those stories were so important to include, why they were, why you framed them in your book and why those stories are so important for us to understand, really, when we think about the complexity of this time period and, you know, what was being fought for, but still what was entrenched socially within that fight. I mean, the two examples that you just mentioned were, I mean, not necessarily for Shauna, I think that Black men were forced to dig ditches and to bury the Civil War dead. I'm pretty sure, Shauna, not to speak for you, that you, you were aware of that before we embarked on the writing of the novel. But the burning of the children's colored asylum in New York was something that neither of us had ever read before. We were familiar with the draft riots of, of, of 1863, but we weren't familiar with that horrible incident that took place on New York soil where, you know, a mob of white men tried to burn 250 black children to their death inside the orphanage. And many of those children's fathers were, you know, union men who had died fighting on the, you know, for freedom. So we early on had this pact between us that if it was something that we were unaware of, we wanted to share that with our readers. We wanted to share it with them in a way that 
they learned from it that they didn't feel that we were like throwing a history book at them, but one in which they felt deeply for the characters. And when Lily writes about the burning of the colored orphans asylum, she is horrified and you feel her emotion lifting off the page. The same as during the Battle of Port Hudson, another battle that we were we were not familiar with the specifics. You know, Sean and I had both seen the movie Glory, which was you know an incredible powerful film with Denzel Washington. But the Battle of Port Hudson preceded that by, is it a number of weeks or days? I'm not even sure, Shauna. But that was, you know, what happened to the Black men where they were basically used as cannon fodder for the Union Army was horrific to us. And we wanted you to see it through William's eyes, to feel it with his beating heart and to, you know, and for his friend by his side. I mean, one of the, for me, the more moving scenes in the book is that after that battle scene takes place, that conversation between the two men of what's happened. So as a historical novelist, I think one of the things that you set out to do is to show that even if something happened 160 years ago, there's themes that are still resonant today. You know, the power of love, the power of family, of friendship to protect our children, to yearn for a better life, to have equality. These are still things that we're all fighting for for today. And there will always be parallels that can be drawn. But at the same time, you're learning about things that maybe you didn't know about. And by the time you finish the last page, you're a little better for it. So that was, I think, our hope. I feel like you just answered the question I was going to ask. So maybe, Sean, if you have anything additional to add to this idea, right? Because that epigraph that you include at the beginning, if you don't know where you're going, you should know where you came from. It really speaks to what you were just touching on, Alice, and this idea of like, I mean, we need to know our history, but what for you, Shauna, why is it important for you that people read this historic fiction novel to understand our country today and history in general? Well, because even though we focus on a limited set of characters who are fictional, they are against the backdrop of true historical fact that is playing out today. You know, I mean, the rise of anti-Semitism, which when we started writing this book, I had not known that there was an expulsion, a temporary expulsion, but an expulsion nevertheless of Jewish soldiers from the Union Army that never would have occurred to me. And I went to a school that was founded as a Jewish orphanage. So it's not as if I'm completely removed from Jewish culture. The rise in anti-Semitism, right? The rise in bias, crimes that are racially based, all of these things that have been happening, those things are like right now. It would be completely naive for us to look at the Civil War and say, well, I really truly hope and believe that it will not come to armed conflict. But all of the issues that were going on are happening now. When we think about the burning of the colored children's orphanage, and I was really ashamed that I hadn't known about that because I belong to a club that's a block away from that corner. And I walk that corner all of the time. You know, that the draft riots were also sparked not just by racism, but economic insecurity and people being scared that folks were coming to take their jobs. We've got people on our borders right now on the southern borders being chartered to goodness knows where because people are scared about their economic security. So I think you have to look at that because sometimes, and Allison and I have had so many authentic, brave, skin-ripping-off conversations through the course of writing this novel, but sometimes it feels too scary to talk about current events with your circle. You don't know where they stand necessarily. You don't know their story. You don't know their pocketbooks, their cultural heritages. So sometimes we can use history as a lens to start to impart those lessons, to start to talk about where you come from, where I come from, and build a bridge. 
that's our hope as well. That if it's too scary to talk about now, maybe you can talk about then and get to a better place. I appreciate that a lot. And I wanted to ask, you know, especially as a, a DEI practitioner in, in that field, hearing you talk about anti-Semitism being on the rise and immigrants being chartered to Martha's Vineyard and, and all of these things that we're seeing now, how do you handle or how have you handled when, because I think there's also the negative aspect of DEI work or not even DEI work, but people almost like this race to the bottom. Like I had it worse than you. I had it worse than you. And how do these all link up in your words? So as much as we were committed to having this story be of two outsiders, one of the things Allison and I agreed fairly early on is that no people have cornered misery. This was going to be a story in which, for a lot of different reasons, because it's taking place in the Civil War, the Black story would be prominent. But it's not reductive, right? There are no 100% evil characters and there are no 100% good characters and it doesn't break down on neat racial or regional lines. I think when you engage in that kind of thinking, you know, my people this, my people that, you miss the fact that like history is just made up of individual stories. I am truly interested in hearing someone's individual story, which will help me consider what's the point of commonality we have. It may not be music, it may not be politics, but we have some point of commonality. I would hope that we can start to have more of those conversations because tribalism hasn't really gotten us anywhere. So having debate about whose people have had it worse or which time period is worse or it's not as bad as slavery, so it's okay. I'm just not really interested in those conversations, but I understand how maybe comforting it can almost be to run there, given how multi-layered and complex the issues are. Thank you. I think with this project with Shauna, you know, even though it was, you know, born out of a time of great darkness in the United States that we started writing this, we very much had the intent that this was going to be a hopeful book, that this was going to be a novel that shows that, you know, the threads that connect us, the bridge that, you know, that connects us rather than divides us. Those were, you know, the themes that we really wanted to come out in high relief. You know, I think there's nothing more beautiful than finding that ray of light within the darkness. And that was something that we were both intent on doing at the same time being historically accurate so that we could weave in, you know, history and, and episodes of history that people might not know. But, our heart was very much intending that when you read this book, you, you do see, as I mentioned before, these universal emotions that connect us, that we are not different. We are human beings who, you know, love, who want to have children to protect them and, and have a full life, a full free life. I love that you referenced the time that, so now we talked about like the themes. I am so curious how you wrote the book because you are longtime friends who wrote a fiction novel, we are longtime friends who wrote our nonfiction book during the pandemic between the insurrection or between the election and the insurrection. Like, I get it. Those were dark days. How did you write a fiction novel? What? <laughs> well, Google Docs are our friend. <laughs> you know, so it was, I think. Shauna and I are really lucky that we both have a similar cadence to language, a similar artistic background. Shauna's mother owns an art gallery in New Orleans. She has like a rich tradition of quilting and art in her family. My mother was an abstract painter. I always, you know, this is my 
eighth novel, but I am self-taught. So every chapter to me is like a blank canvas where I start to imagine, you know, the colors and the brushstrokes moving you across the, you know, the page. And I think Shauna, not to speak for you, but like we have a similar visual palette and, you know, sensory rich way of expressing ourselves. And so that was a given the style of like how we were going to write. We also were very determined that we didn't want to have you know, two different, like her writing the black characters, me writing the Jewish characters, you know, her writing just Stella and I'm just writing Lily. We wanted to create a seamless narrative voice. And I think that really, you know, embodies the experience of coming together, bridging together to become one heart, one mind, learning about each other's history so that we had a well to pull from when we were writing the novel. Shauna was comfortable for with me kind of take, you know, we would brainstorm every single chapter, you know, basically making them come alive with, you know, our notes of what was going to happen. And then I take a first pass, which was done in very broad strokes. You know, I almost like to describe it as a wire armature of what was happening in that chapter. And then I text Shauna. And then when, you know, she was able to get into it, she would start putting that those first layers of clay on it. And then me, you know, and until it was to us perfectly formed, that could take two months to get three, you know, three chapters and our chapters are short. So 20 pages, it could take just to before we felt like we were going to move on to the next. We're not writers who write a messy draft and then go back and fix it. We were very much like, let's get it right, even as long as it takes and then move on. But we also had a deadline as well. So it was like, <laughs> let's get it right as long as it takes, as long as we can meet our deadline with our editor. <laughs> I love that. I love the artistic also the sort of the imagery there because yeah, it sounds so beautiful, right? Because I, and I cannot tell, right, if you told me this book was written by one of you, then sure, I would believe that, you know, so to have your voices sort of mesh that seamlessly together is wonderful. One of the beautiful things about writing in a Google Doc, because it's not something I normally do with my other books, is that we could write notes to each other. So even if like we were writing something that didn't seem right, instead of just not, you know, writing it, like if I was embarrassed to try and like say what the character is supposed to say, even though I didn't feel I was getting in the right dialect, I could make a note like, I know this sounds terrible, but could you put this in, you know, the proper dialect? Or Shauna would say, I think we need to have a conversation about this, you know, this particular choice. The character is not sitting right with me. There was so much focus on the language of what we use to make sure that it was correctly embodying the soul of that character. I mean, we, we talked a lot when we were writing about the respect we wanted to have for the, you know, our ancestors who came before us, who didn't have a voice and making sure that it felt like we were being respectful and paying homage to these people who weren't able to articulate their stories. So I love those conversations that Shauna and I had about certain words and, you know, whether that was really embodying fully what the experience was, or maybe it wasn't said properly, you know, all those little nuances to make sure we got it right. Now you had mentioned it before, Shauna, like the skin ripping off conversations, like what did it take? Because we talk on our show also about, I mean, we, it's called Dear White Women, right? But we also talk about cross-racial friendships. What did it take for you two to feel, com- and I would love to hear from each of you, to feel comfortable about working with each other, a white Jewish woman, a black woman, like what went into that building that friendship and that trust to get to this point of being able to mold that clay into this beautiful book? Well, so- In some ways, we are privileged and we've been friends for 13 years, right? So we're not a duo that's been embarking on this project without a certain layer of trust. 
But as I say, I say it a little flippantly and Allison <laughs> probably doesn't love it. We had first started chatting a little bit about this book in 2017, but when she called me in 2020 and I'm working in DEI and I'm a black woman and I literally remember putting down the phone and turning to my husband and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, right? Because I had white girlfriends who were being lovely, but were sending me little flowers, like thinking of you during this difficult time. And I'm like, please don't send me lilies because I'm not related to George Floyd, right? Like that's not where I want your focus. And Allison was coming from the best place, but I always liken it to like, so there's a race war going on and your white girlfriend calls you up and she's like, do you want to write a novel about the Civil War? No, like that's actually not where I'm going to put my energy right now. But my husband encouraged me to think of it differently as potentially a place for healing and education and a platform for the conversations that I probably at the time didn't even know I desperately needed. I have many cross-racial friendships. I think this is become one of the most honest ones that I have had. But there were times when I was shocked, but the good thing is Allison was equally shocked about the connections that she hadn't made. So as part of our research, and Allison, I hope you don't mind, I don't think you'll mind if I tell this, we read um, a book, a nonfiction book called All That She Carried by Tia Miles, where she's describing how an enslaved woman has given a flower sack with really just trinkets to her daughter who's being sold away from her. And then later on that history is put on the sack in embroidered thread. And Allison called me and she said, I'm reading this book and it reads like a Holocaust book. And I said, of course. And I think it's so brave of her to acknowledge that she hadn't thought about that that way as a Jewish woman who's written like three novels focused on World War II. But for me, there was something that was really inherently painful that someone who I love and respect so much just didn't immediately recognize that slavery was a 400 year Holocaust. Like it does shift your view of the world, right? Like your view of the world is constantly shifting when you realize how much about your day-to-day -day existence is not apparent to other people and how much the connections between other people's suffering and your people's suffering is not made. And I don't tell that story to say, oh, Allison, I can't believe you didn't know this. I tell that to say that she is wonderful and empathetic and educated, and we are not taught to make these connections. So in many ways, we have to teach ourselves to make these connections. So it took almost everything in me to do this, but I would not have done it unless I felt like it was going to be respected. And Allison has been such a respectful partner. And she helped me like put my skin back on. I ripped it off. Allison, how about for you? Well, yes. I mean, I remember that moment I called her because I felt so ignorant that I hadn't made, I mean, that connection of the parallels being so blatantly obvious, you know, and I've been watching now Ken Burns's documentary, The United States and the Holocaust. I don't know if you've watched it yet, but there have been so many parallels that he has definitely drawn about what happened, you know, with the laws that were created to marginalize Jewish people, to strip them of their rights, to separate them from their families, and inevitably to try and kill them off that were taken from laws that were basically Jim Crow laws down in the South. And when in the early years, when they were constructing those laws and there was criticism from the United States, there's a line in the documentary where 
one of the members of the Reich just said, Mississippi, like you're calling us, you know, the kettle black, basically. So that's horrifying that happened. And that's happening today with, you know, the laws that are being constructed to, to strip people of voting rights, of female reproductive rights. It's a very, very scary time. But I think when I was doing research for my novels that take place in World War II, I have one book, The Lost Wife, that focuses on an artist who is able to survive because of her artistic skill in a concentration camp called Theresienstadt, that I often felt that I got from readers all around the world. Like I remember getting you know, an email from someone in Poland who said, I never knew what happened to the Jews in World War II. My grandmother didn't want to talk about it, but now I feel so terrible. And thank you for illuminating this to me. And again, going to places all around the country where people didn't realize what happened to the Hebrews. You know, I had that word used often. And so I think it's what Shauna said. If it's not your people, sometimes you don't make those connections of the suffering, the marginalization, the heartbreak. And this book has really enabled us to have these really deep conversations and to learn from each other. What a gift. What else have we not asked that you think is important for people to know about you, about the book? What a great question. You know, because we are a group of women speaking, I will also say that we are justifiably proud of the different layers of female relationships that we have in the book. You know, William and Jacob and their meeting on the battlefield are how you gain entree into these two couples, one Black, one Jewish. But there's so much about women and the different ways that women relate to each other in this book as well. In New Orleans, we have Stella, our heroine, and she's biracial. And then she's got a sister who's fully Black, who is, not to mince words, almost like a servant in her enslaved sister's house. So think about all those levels. And their mother, who is trying to raise women the best that she can in limited circumstances. And then you have Lily, who is privileged, motherless looking for mentors, looking for a circle where she can fit in, looking for purpose. And so I think that we focus so much on the men in our book and we love the story of the men, but I also want to say that we really wanted to talk about women and talk about their relationships, even when a lot of their relationships, there is subtext and some of it's not said. And I think this sense of where do women draw their strength? Where do they find their ingenuity, their creativity, their sense of purpose, against the, you know, a very dark time, one of the darkest times in American history, I hope will be inspiring for readers, you know, to, as you see, you know, to look around you and what can you, you know, Stella's creating, you know, by unraveling her dress and finding the thread and like pillowcases are the best of her master. What do we do with those threads around us to build something that's beautiful and that will will be able to be preserved through history. You know, that's a, you know, part of your legacy, part of your vision, part of your soul. Well, let me start. I love those answers. Thank you so much for sharing those. And so if people want to buy your book, find out more about you both, where can they go? Well, we have a a website, which is just the name of the book, thethreadcollectors.com. You can find me on social media at Allison, A-L-Y-S-O-N-R-I-C-H-M-A-N. And Shauna... Yep, you can find me on social media as well. Shauna J. Edwards, S-H-A-U-N-N-A-J-E-D-W-A-R-D-S. 
Yes. And, you know, obviously the book is available at, at most independent bookstores. We love bookshop.org. It, of course, is available at online platforms, but we're really trying to help the independent bookstores by, you know, making sure that if you are going to get the book to support them. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>